final week of Jesus' life. It began with what we call Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate today. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem of the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. It's one of the rare events that we find that's recorded in all four Gospels. I'll give you a riddle. How many donkeys did the disciples untie and bring to Jesus? Don't answer. Just think about it. Because our romantic ideas of what that event must have been like come largely from the movies that we watch and the paintings that we see, the artwork that we see, rather than coming from a reasoning out of the biblical texts. In our minds, we picture Jesus Christ entering the city on a full-grown donkey with crowds parading him in and cheering him on wildly and intensely. It's true that many were there throwing their garments in the streets and laying palm branches in his path, crying out, Hosanna, save now, deliver us now. You are the king. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. Yet through a careful reading of the gospel accounts, a slightly different picture emerges. A fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the real facts confirmed in the gospels is that Jesus came into town riding on a colt the foal of a donkey. And Mark and Luke say that it was a colt that had never been sat upon before, completely unbroken. So young was the animal that in Matthew's gospel, we read that they brought the mother as well, likely in order to keep the colt somewhat stable. So there you have it, the answer to the riddle. There were actually two donkeys in the procession according to Matthew chapter 21, verses 2 and 6 and 7. Now, which one was Jesus riding on? Well, picture Jesus, a grown man of 33, seated on the baby, not the mother, the foal, the colt. His feet were probably dragging on the ground because he was too large for the animal. In addition, as he approaches the city, the Messiah is crying, literally sobbing over the city, as Luke chapter 19 points out. And who was in the crowd that was lending him support as he was paraded in? A group from Bethany still raving over the raising of Lazarus. No doubt there were some travelers from Galilee who knew him and a number of people who were curious and had a penchant for the spectacular and had witnessed his miraculous signs. Matthew indicates that the blind, the lame, the peasants, and children were among his notable cheerleaders in that procession. And I've studied and restudied the details of this momentous event. It occurred to me that Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem was hardly the typical picture of a king. It was, however, strikingly similar to the way that he entered the world and would soon leave it. Humbly, without honor, without pomp or circumstance. Quite honestly, in utter humiliation. Yet there was a hint of victory in the air. A whiff of triumph. I won't easily forget the first time that I noticed that in the scriptures as I was reading them. It took me by surprise when I actually saw it. After 20 years of reading my Bible at that point, I had never seen the connection before. Don't you like that when that happens? It's like all of a sudden you've got freshness. And then it hit me. And it's emphasized only in John's gospel. John chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for you. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now skip down to verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. And for this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. John surrounds Christ's presentation of himself as the Messiah and the triumphal entry with the miracle of Lazarus's resurrection. He devotes 44 verses of chapter 11 to it, and then he sprinkles the next 31 verses with references to it. So Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus caused more stir among the religious leaders than the triumphal entry did. Why? Pretty obvious. Because they knew Jesus possessed authentic and authoritative power. The kind of power that did not depend upon the ambivalent reactions of a city who would cry Hosanna in one breath and crucify him in the next. Jesus' power transcended the popularity polls. Lazarus' resurrection was a preview of things to come. I believe John placed Lazarus' resurrection strategically in his gospel as a preview or a prelude to eternity, pointing to the premier event, which is what? Easter Sunday. John Irving once wrote these words. He said, anyone can be sentimental about the nativity. Any fool can feel like a Christian at Christmas time. But Easter, that's the main event. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a believer. Unquote. The resurrection of Christ stands as his towering triumphal entry into his kingship and our triumphal entry into eternal life. So today I want to look closely at this sneak peek that Jesus gave to Mary, Martha, and the crowds of the main event that we will celebrate next week. There is much to learn about life in the presence of death. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 11. And as I often say at the funerals that I conduct, death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. The Bible repeatedly explains the truth that, quote, it is appointed for man to die once. After this comes judgment in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Now, since the moment Eve ate the fruit and Adam followed in her steps, spiritual and physical death has reigned. Is that right? We can deny it if we want to. And we can shove it under the rug and refuse to acknowledge it if we want to, yet we live in a death-denying society, don't we? Advertisers go to extremes to help us deny the inevitable fact of life, but the irreversible fact, writes Billy Graham, is that no matter what your diet, no matter how much you exercise, no matter how many vitamins or health foods you eat, no matter how low your cholesterol, you will still die. That's an encouraging message, isn't it? (laughs) Someday, some way, in the end, death will conquer you as it has every single person who has ever lived. Save maybe one or two in the Old Testament. Death is, you've heard me say this before, the last enemy, isn't it? 
I say that at every funeral to remind people that what they're staring at is the inevitability of every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Let's Jesus comes to get us first. Do you remember your first encounter with death? Think back, because I do vividly. Some of you know this about me. Most of you don't. But I was about seven years old. In the spring of 1964, my aunt left her apartment for church, not knowing that when she returned home that morning, life for her and her family would be radically changed forever. Through a series of unfortunate and irreversible events, my 15-month-old cousin drowned in a clogged bathtub in her apartment. And I will never forget the terror in my mom's voice when she received the phone call. I'll never forget the days that followed that, the preparations, the visits, especially the funeral home. I think it was the first time I can remember seeing grown men cry in front of me. And that impacted me for life. To see the broad shoulders of the most important men in my life slouched over and shaking violently as they silently sobbed was more than I could understand as a young boy. I realized right then and there, right on that spot, that death was a fierce enemy, a final enemy, and it spares no one. Not even little babies. In the opening lines of his book, the last thing we talk about, the late Joseph Bailey confronts us with the imposing reality of death. He says, dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow with Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient for the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Those are sobering words, aren't they? But they're truthful words. The kind of words we need to take into consideration if we're to understand Jesus' relationship to death and his relationship to life and our reaction to him. Because someday every one of us will face the reality of that death. It will be painfully real to us just as it was to Martha and to Mary and to Lazarus in today's text. It is in this encounter with the final enemy of death that Jesus teaches us that he has and he is the final word about it. If the final enemy is death, the final answer is Jesus, isn't it? This raising of Lazarus summarily combines the complete character and person of who Jesus Christ is demonstrating his complete deity while at the same time portraying his ultimate and the fullness of his humanity. Both of those things are seen in this text. John has a lot to teach us in this text about Jesus and Jesus has a lot to teach us in this text about death and life. This miracle was divinely placed exactly in the middle of John's gospel. Right in the middle. And it's the hinge, I believe, upon which swings the whole purpose of John's entire gospel and Jesus' life. It marks a turning point for all who encounter it. For the disciples, for the sisters, for the Savior, and for everyone who seeks the truth, I believe that this sign which John chose to unveil for us in John chapter 11 was designed to accomplish at least four things. To strengthen the disciples' faith, to sharpen the sisters' focus, to exalt the Savior's Father, and to identify Jesus' serious followers. Those four things. And I think those four things still stand true today. And that's why we have it in John's Gospel. Track with me as we watch how these things unfold. Look at verses 1 to 6 with me. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Interesting few verses there. The hardest lessons are always learned in the heat of crisis, aren't they? You ever notice that in your life? And here we find the friends of Jesus are in crisis mode. One of Jesus' best friends is sick, Lazarus, is fading fast, and his sisters know of only one remedy for that, Jesus. So that they know that in his presence, that his presence somehow chased away the threat of death. Take a careful glance at the Gospels sometime when you have time, and you will find that no one ever died in the presence of Jesus. No one ever died in the presence of Jesus. Not at least in any recorded account. Even the two who were crucified with him died after Jesus died. After he gave up his spirit. It's an interesting thought. Jesus loved Lazarus like a brother. The word John uses, phileo, implies strong, strong affection, brotherly love. Notice that Mary and Martha based their message on that fact. The message that they sent. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Not that Lazarus loved him, but that Jesus loved Lazarus. I believe Lazarus loved Jesus. But this says that Jesus loved him. How confident they must have been in their relationship to Christ to be able to say that. They knew that love would summon him to their crisis. That's probably why they never requested him to come. They just assumed that he would. Notice, they didn't ask him to come. They just said, the one whom you love is sick. They assumed he would come. What they didn't know was that their crisis was going to get a whole lot worse before it got better. And sometimes it happens that way, doesn't it? I mean, if you're in a crisis right now in your life or you've been in one, you can relate to this. You may not understand what God is doing or comprehend the whys of why he's doing it, but you understand the concept of experiencing crisis, don't you? In his book, If God is So Good, Why Do I Hurt So Bad?, David Beeble writes that other languages sometimes give a broader view than ours. For instance, in the Vietnamese uh, language, the word for crisis is nui ker, which literally means danger opportunity. He goes on to say in that book that crisis, quote, is both danger and opportunity. Now, that's a pretty ins- insightful statement that he makes. Our crisis, if you think about it, is always God's opportunity to grow us, to heal us, to strengthen us, to develop us, and to draw us closer as his beloved child. It's an opportunity for him to be glorified in us, in our lives. But at that time, at the time that we're going through that crisis, that's the last thing we're thinking about, isn't it? Crisis can take us to the absolute limits Challenging our faith, our sanity, our concept of God, our trust in God. It is a dangerous, dangerous place to be, but it also yields an immense opportunity. The opportunity for us to know that in our weakness that he is made strong. To learn to trust that even when we can't feel the ground beneath us, he's got us undergirded with his hands. To understand that we are not the master of our destiny. And to emerge wiser, more real, and more intimately acquainted with the Savior. This crisis, however, didn't simply involve a family in Bethany. It also involved the disciples. And the first thing Jesus wanted this sign to accomplish, as I said, was to strengthen the disciples' faith. 
Jesus was going to teach them a few lessons through this encounter. And the first thing was that death is not final. Look at four, verse four. Again, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The end of it, it was not to be just the death of Lazarus. It was going to end in the glory of God and the glory of Jesus. Ultimately, this crisis was an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed and his own glory to be made known. And these same purposes are seen throughout this chapter. Look at verse 40, for example. Jesus said to her, to Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Look at verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, Jesus is praying, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. You see? Belief in the crowd would glorify God. This entire scene is a sneak peek at all that Jesus came to accomplish to nullify the power of death, reverse the curse brought on by sin, and to offer the gift of life to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. It was proof positive that his claim that he was the resurrection and the life and that anyone who believed in him would not die but live. Jesus was just showing them through this that death is not final. Right from the start of this miracle, you know, as you read through this chapter, you find that there's an orchestrated quality about it. Don't you see that? Jesus did not immediately respond to the message that Lazarus was sick, did he? I find that intriguing in verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he girded up his loins and he ran. Is that what it says? No. He stayed two days longer in the place that he was. The fact is, is that by the time that Jesus received the message, Lazarus was already dead. Yet, Jesus still waited two more days. Intentionally. Incredibly. Jesus deliberately let Lazarus die and the family grieved that death. Was it callousness on Jesus' part? The text says that Jesus deeply loved this family. I doubt if it was callousness. Is there a contradiction here? Commentator Warren Wiersbe says, God's love for his people is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. And here's the thing. God's love for us is no guarantee that we will not be faced with problems or sheltered from pain. The concept of God's love for us and him allowing us to suffer are not necessarily incompatible, much to the chagrin of our culture. And those that say, well, if your God is so good, why do bad things happen to people? Why do bad things happen to good people? You see, the concept of God's love for us and our suffering are not necessarily incompatible. Listen, Jesus was loved by his Father beyond all human comprehension, wasn't he? And yet God permitted him to suffer the brutality of the cross. But the big question is, why does it happen? And that's the question anyone in a crisis asks Martha's questions are strikingly similar to ours, aren't they? She says, we've called for Jesus. Why doesn't he come? Didn't he heal the paralytic? Didn't he open the blind man's eyes? Didn't he feed the 5,000 for crying out loud? He even replenished the wine at a wedding reception. Why won't he take care of this? I can just picture Martha saying these things in her mind. Because you and I have felt that way, haven't we? You wait and you wait and you wait, but the knock on the door never comes. The healer doesn't show. The helper seems too far away. Lazarus died. The funeral took place. The body was buried. The tomb was sealed. 
And the Savior waited. Why? Well, God gives us the first clue right there in verse 4. For the glory of God. And so that God's Son would be glorified. Because death is not final, and Jesus knew it. Ultimately, for those who love Jesus, physical death is not the end, but a beginning. It's the entry point into a life that is infinitely more real and more complete than anything we've ever experienced here on this earth. The scripture says in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. So while Mary and Martha and everybody else were lamenting Lazarus' death, it was precious in the sight of Jesus. The disciples needed to know that death was not final. And you and I need to know that too, don't we? Secondly, they needed to know that God's will is not optional. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I believe that Jesus waited for another reason, too. Because it was the will of God that Jesus waited two more days. Jesus always lived on God's divine timetable. He always did exactly what his father told him to do. His enigmatic statement here in these verses to the fearful disciples in verses 9 and 10 simply mean this. When a person operates in the light of God's will according to God's timetable, nothing can ultimately harm them. Okay? So don't get tripped up by fear. As 21st century followers of Christ, we need to learn that truth big time. That we are on the Father's schedule, not ours. And you know what? The time that we have to accomplish God's will is fixed. It's fixed. We can't extend it by being neurotically cautious nor can we shorten it by any plot of the opposition. The enemy cannot shorten your time here on the earth. As a Christ follower, you are absolutely invincible until you fulfill his purpose for placing you here. Say that again. As a Christ follower, you are absolutely invincible until you fulfill his purpose for placing you on this earth. Now, I need to follow it up with this statement. As long as you are walking in the light of his plan. Don't leave that part out. Because I know what you're thinking, that if I walked out of here today and I jumped off a bridge, that I would shorten my life. Well, that would not be walking in the light of God's will, would it? You're tempting God. It's like Satan said to Jesus in the desert. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of this temple. God's angels will bear you up. Right? But Jesus, how did he respond to that? God's word says, you're not going to tempt the Father's will. So death is not final. Jesus is teaching them that. God's will is not optional. That's the next thing he was teaching them. Thirdly, they needed to know that their faith was too fragile. Verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. They still don't have a, a handle on Jesus' statements or his agenda, do they? Not at all. They didn't grasp the magnitude of who they were following. Their faith needed strengthening, and Jesus plainly pointed out to them that he had a clear purpose for what was about to take place. Look at verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may, what? Believe. But let us go to him. 
This miracle was not primarily designed to be a public demonstration of Christ as Messiah to the nation, but rather to confirm to his disciples that what Peter had claimed was indeed true, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Their faith needed some bulking up for what was coming down the pike when he was crucified. Very near future. And our faith needs to be bulked up sometimes, doesn't it? That's why we sometimes encounter a crisis in our lives just before another one of even greater intensity breaks loose. God uses it as a signpost that points us to Jesus. Look at verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we might die with him. Interesting statement by Thomas. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas' statement gives us some insight into his character as a loyal and devoted follower of Christ. You know, Thomas may not have always understood what was happening. He may have had his doubts, but he was always ready to follow Christ into the crisis and through the crisis. But the disciples were not the only ones who were on the brink of crisis. Mary and Martha were as well. They were already deep into the heart of it. And it's here that John unveils a second purpose for this miraculous sign. Not only was the restoration of of Lazarus designed to strengthen the disciples' faith, but it was to sharpen the sisters' focus. Look at verse 17 and following with me. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that wherever you ask of God, he will give to you. It didn't take long for the news to get around about Lazarus' death. And by the time Jesus got there, the funeral and the burial were over. Martha, type A personality, right? Look up Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and you'll see that. Immediately rushes out to meet Jesus when she heard he was coming. And these are her words, right? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you, Lord? Where were you? Why didn't you come? If you had only come. Martha's venting. Pain in her heart is simply too much for her to bear. And she's confused and angry, maybe a little bit bitter, and the object of her frustration is, guess who? Jesus, the Son of God. You know, although Mary's personality was 180 degrees contrary to Martha's, her reaction is absolutely identical. Word for word, she says the same exact thing. If you had been here, you know, pain levels us no matter who we are, right? No matter what kind of personality you have, type A or not type A. If you had been, those four words, they hang over us like, a, like a, an emotional mushroom cloud. Martha's words have been repeated in a thousand hospital rooms, haven't they? Hundreds of accident scenes and in countless cemeteries. If you had been. If you've been paying attention, God, my baby would have lived. If you've been listening to my prayers, Lord, my husband would have gotten well. I can almost hear my aunt and uncle back in 1964 saying those words, if you had been here. Someone has said that the grave unearths our view of God. It's true. Death challenges our definition of God chase against our concept of his goodness. But why is it that we interpret the presence of death as the absence of God's love? Are healing, delivering, saving, and rescuing the only way God shows us that he is present with us and that he deeply loves us? Read Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Right? To the depths of Sheol, you're there. He's he's there, wherever we are. Was Martha wrong to question Jesus? Was her faith crumbling? Well, challenged maybe, but not destroyed. 
Please notice there was no lack of trust on Martha's part. Verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She trusted him. There was no lack of truth. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She hadn't abandoned what she knew to be theologically true. All Martha had to go on was her faith in what God had revealed in the Old Testament about a future resurrection. Surely she had heard the stories about Jesus as raising the young boy at Nain and the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue official in Luke 8. Surely she knew Jesus' teaching on the subject back in John chapter 5 when, Je when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there was no lack of teaching and even though there was no lack of trust, no lack of truth, no lack of teaching, there was a lack of focus on these sisters' part. And for the most part, that's our problem in a crisis, isn't it? We just lose focus. We don't necessarily drop our faith. We don't stop trusting in the truth. We just misplace our focal point. And that was Martha's deal here. And Jesus sought to sharpen it in one of the seven most significant claims that he makes in Scripture. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha stated her faith in the form of orthodox facts. Even though... Even now, I know that you, whatever you ask God, he'll do. I know that he's going to rise again. But Jesus stated the truth of resurrection as a fact about himself. Martha pointed to a doctrine. Jesus pointed to a person. Himself. You know what Jesus didn't say? Jesus didn't say, Martha, I am the performer of resurrections. He said, I am the resurrection." He didn't say, I bring people back to life. He said, I am the life. He who believes in me shall live, not he who believes that I can do this. You get that? Friends, it's belief in Jesus as the resurrection and Jesus as the life that will not only allow you to face the last enemy, death, but every single enemy in between. You know, nothing else is going to help you but Jesus. Not really. When you're sick, you want a doctor. You don't want a medical book, right? When you're being mugged by a criminal, you want a cop, not a copy of the law book, right? When you're drowning, you want a lifeguard, not a swimming manual. And when you and I face the final enemy... Who wants to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death? We're going to want a savior to cling to and not a doctrinal statement to read out loud. Right? If you've got a relationship with your Bible only, you're in trouble. The Pharisees who crucified Jesus had that. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one to whom the scriptures point. Amen? Martha had faith. She just needed refocusing. He looked her in the eye and he asked her point blank, Martha, do you believe this? And in a statement reminiscent of Peter's confession, she gives evidence that her belief indeed was in, in the person of Jesus as Lord and Christ. It was a settled conviction of hers. She had believed in good times and she would continue to believe even now. Look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, 
She went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. See, no lack of trust, no lack of truth, no lack of teaching. And on Mary's part, there was no lack of devotion. We find her again where we always find Mary in the gospel accounts, at Jesus' feet. She fell at his feet. Martha's crying, Mary's crying, the Jews were crying, and then Jesus, in a gut-wrenching twist that catches even the hardest person off guard, we find out that in him there was even no lack of emotion. Look at verse 33. But when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. John says he was deeply moved in his spirit. You know what that literally means? He was angry. He was troubled. He was agitated. Greek scholars say that the word John uses translated deeply moved literally means to snort. It's like he was snorting. He was so mad. It's an expression of anger. He was distressed and he was enraged at what? John doesn't tell us at what, but I can offer a few suggestions. I think Jesus was enraged at sin. The sadness it brought people. The corruption it caused in body and soul. He was mad at, he was angry at Satan, the perpetrator of death. You know, had Satan not had his way in the garden, words like death, tears, mourning, grave, pain, sorrow, sickness, and grief, they'd have no meaning. They wouldn't even be in our vocabulary. Have you ever thought about that? I think he snorted at suffering. He was angered at the suffering that the world he created was now subject to. And in his humanity, he would be subject to. And I think he was angry at the stench of death itself, the final enemy that he would soon face off with. But in the midst of all of this righteous anger, another twist wrenches us out of our seats. Jesus silently bursts into tears. In an incredible display of his identification with our humanity, Jesus wept. And again, John doesn't elaborate much, but the picture is heart-stopping, isn't it? On only two occasions do we find Jesus shedding tears in the Scripture, in the, in the New Testament. On a hill overlooking Jerusalem, weeping for the nation, as he comes into the city on Palm Sunday, and in front of a friend's grave. Those two cases, he weeps with those who weep. What an incredible Savior we have. Ken Geyer observes, weeping not just for us in our sin, but with us in our suffering. For a beautifully tender moment here, we're given a privilege to glimpse one of the most provocative embraces between deity and humanity in the Scriptures. It's remarkable that our plight could trouble his spirit, that our pain could summon his tears. It was an incredible moment, he says. Which is more incredible, do you think? A man who raises the dead or a God who weeps? In your pain, he knows how you feel. In my pain, he knows how I feel. And he feels it too. You know what Isaiah said of him? He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Is that the Jesus that you know? But this crowd, they misunderstood. While Jesus sought to sharpen the sister's faith and focus, the crowd missed it all together. So the Jews were saying in verse 36, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? They thought Jesus was weeping because Lazarus died. 
They were wrong. Jesus knew the reality of Lazarus's joy on the other side of death. He'd been there. They question now whether or not he could have even prevented the death. They were wrong in that too. Why would he want to? No one knew what Lazarus was experiencing in the presence of God except Jesus. Jesus knew that. All they knew was their own pain, their own sorrow. This crowd needed real faith. Look at verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within. Same word. He came to the tomb, and now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus, again, angered, probably at their short-sightedness, came to this tomb. This crowd thought that physical death was the worst thing that could have happened to him. They didn't realize that there's something much worse than physical death. Spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? See, Martha believed in Christ, but she still not, didn't expect a miracle out of him. After four days, there was no question that Lazarus was dead. Corruption had already set in, and it's here we get a clue as to why Jesus waited two days before coming, right? There would be no questioning the evidence of his power here. Lazarus was dead, dead as dead can be. There was no question. And Jesus also reveals here that the ultimate purpose for this sign not only was it to strengthen the disciples' faith, to sharpen the sisters' focus, but it was to exalt the Savior's Father. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around here, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he had cried out with a loud voice, The words are, Lazarus, come forth. I won't even attempt to even try to say it the way Jesus said it. I don't know. I know he said it in a loud voice, a commanding voice. These people were about to witness the glory of God and the affirmation of Jesus' authority. Jesus prayed, and then he spoke, Lazarus, come forth. An old Puritan writer said this, and I love this, said that if Jesus had not named Lazarus, if he had just said, come forth, when he shouted, he would have emptied the whole cemetery. His words were as powerful and as effective as the ones spoken at creation. Let there be light. And there was light. When Jesus says to a person, let there be life, there's life. Are you broken? Are you depressed? Are you in despair of your life and the way that it's turning out? You know, Jesus stands ready to say to you, so and so, come forth. Let there be life. He did it on a couple of other occasions, right? Luke 7, he came up, touched the coffin. The bearers came to a halt. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. That'd blow me away at a funeral. I'd just, that'd be done. I'd be undone. Luke chapter 8, taking this young little girl by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. Look at verse 44. The man who had died, it says, came forth. Bound, hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You're free. He's free. Death no longer has hold of him. One word comes to mind. Incredible. Read the words again. The man who had died came forth. 
the final enemy is death, the final answer is Jesus. There's one more purpose to this miracle, and it's the one some of you desperately need to grapple with right now at this moment. The raising of Lazarus drew a line in the sand that day, and it still does today. Lazarus wasn't the only one to be raised to life. Spiritually speaking, there were many others who passed from death into life in Christ. Lazarus' restoration not only strengthened the disciples' faith, it not only sharpened the sisters' focus, it didn't only exalt the Savior's Father, but inevitably it identified the serious followers. Look at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. I said it last, I think it was last week. The word divides. It does, doesn't it? And we see it right here. You ever witnessed a man coming to life that's been dead for four days? Do you think that would alter you a little bit? How could it be so divisive here that some believed and some did not? And you hear the word being taught to you today. Where does that leave you? Jesus promised to give eternal life and raise up on the last day everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him who sent me, Jesus said in John chapter 5. Will you be one of them if you're not already? Bottom line is, do you believe? Do you believe? Because Jesus is the kind of God you want in a crisis in your life. He's the kind of Savior you want at your funeral. And he's calling you just as he called Lazarus. You can ignore his voice and stay in the cold, silent tomb of your unbelief, or you can believe what he says and come forth into a fresh, free, new way of life. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's anybody riding the fence today on this choice, that they would make it that they could not resist it, that when Jesus names them and says, come forth to life, that they would come forth to life. But Father, you do not impose your will upon people who are not wanting it. That's the freedom that you gave us. It's this, it's this dance between sovereignty and free will. And the scriptures teaches so much on both sides. All I know is, Lord, if you're calling us, anybody here in this place, there needs to be a response. So I pray for that person right now that's riding the fence, that they would get off the fence and come forth into newness of life in Jesus. For I pray it in his name. Amen.